We'll be in John. We'll be in John chapter 11 this morning. We've been uh, making our way through the Gospel of John as we've done this Lord's Supper service together. And the book of John has been going through so far and it's been showing us different signs that point to different realities about who Jesus is. And what we see today is that as we open up this, it's the familiar account of, of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And if you've read the New Testament very well at all, if you understand the kind of the overarching narrative of where things are going, Jesus Christ himself will also be risen from the dead. And so you read this with that knowledge and this understanding, and you start seeing these things line up, and, well, this is why God laid this out this way, and this is why Jesus said this at this time, and all of these things start to drop right in place for us. But the story centers not on Lazarus. Now, if, if we were to cast this, to lay this out in, in this 21st century motif, Lazarus would be the main character because he has the most dramatic thing happen to him. But Jesus gives us this radically different understanding of what the main point, the main overarching idea of, of this narrative account is. And we're going to see that as we walk through this together. So open up to, to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the back of the pew in front of you. It opens up and it says, Now a certain man was ill, just in anybody, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, and it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Look what he says here. It is for the glory of God. To what end? So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This whole account of Lazarus being raised from the dead exists to glorify God. The whole account, everything they experience, everything they go through centers on God receiving glory on, on account of them, their lives, their agony, their despair. It, 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 there's this amazing sense of, of, of resting in that and trusting in that, that God is fully sovereign yet fully compassionate in the person of Jesus. All of these things rest, not out of his reach, but firmly within his hand. And so what we see is Mary and Martha, their brother gets sick. You and I have had sick relatives. And they, 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 they rack their minds, likely they're thinking, like, who do we need to call? Who do we need to, need to let? And we've seen Jesus do amazing things, so they, they pay someone, they ask someone to go in to find him. Now we find Jesus roughly 100 miles from their home. He's 100 miles away. He's on the other side of the Jordan area uh, where John the Baptist had been working. And so he's there and, and, and someone comes to him and they say, Look, you know Lazarus, you love him? He's sick. He's not doing well. He's going to die. Now, what happens next strikes me as a little bit odd. Now many of you know that I, I didn't grow up in the U.S. and so I grew up living in Europe and and very frequently, it would seem that we would get a phone call always in the middle of the night, always in the middle of the night, and, and you'd hear that ring, and as a child, I'd just lay there still in bed, knowing that someone was going to come into my room and say, you know, so-and-so has been in an accident, or, or so-and-so has died. I can remember when it happened with my grandmother, I can remember what happened with my cousin, I can remember with my great-grandmother, I can remember friends of our family. 
always in the middle of the night. And so they, they come into the room and say, we've got this news, this is what happened, your grandmother is, is dead. And so instantly, they would begin to call the airline. And so they call the airline and they're trying to find out when they can get a flight out, when they can get back to the States. Are they on life support? What's it look like? Can we make it back in time? Because we want to be there. We want this nearness. That we want to be there with them when they're suffering. We want to be close to them. We want to minister to the family. But what do we see happen here? It's Jesus like, okay, I can catch the 4.30 back to Bethany. He's like, okay, hey boys, round up some donkeys. Give me, some, give me, a, give me a boat. I need to get back there. We got to get this thing going. I got to get, well, don't leave. You're going to show me the way back to Lazarus. What's the, uh, what's the 2.30 connection out of Jerusalem? Like he doesn't do that. In fact, he gives us this remarkably surprising response. Look what it says in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, John's writing this because he doesn't want us to miss the trajectory of this account. He loves them. He cares for them deeply. He wants good things for them. He wants to see them... Uh, do well. He loves them. Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. But, I mean, so we read this and we think, well, this is contrary to our experience. This is contrary to the way that we do things. This seems decidedly unloving. This seems bizarre. It seems obscure. It seems that Jesus has this radical accounting. Well, maybe he's God, and, and time doesn't exist for God, and so he's just there hanging out with people, and he loses track of time. No. Like, that's not it. He's trying to teach them something. He's trying to teach us something. He knew Lazarus would die. It wasn't that he thought he had more time. It wasn't that he thought he could... I can get there fast enough. I mean, I'm Jesus, so I can be here, I can be there. No, he is waiting purposefully. He loves them. And he recognized for them the most important thing wasn't their brother staying alive, but it was his glory being manifest in their lives and them coming to know Jesus in a radically different way. You see, if he had gone, and he's going to get into this, if he had gone and he had forestalled Lazarus' death, they would have missed out on seeing God's glory manifested, shown in the person of Jesus. They'd missed out on this knowledge, on this experience. But in verse 7, it says, then, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, if you read down through this, you're going to recognize that the disciples aren't particularly amped about this. They're not very excited about this. Now, Jesus, in John chapter 10, had just been in this area. He had just been in Jerusalem in the midst of teaching. He saw the Jews reach down. They grabbed stones. They were going to stone him. He saw others at the end of chapter 10 want to arrest him, want to imprison him. And so you've got to think, in the mind of the disciple, Jesus is like, okay, he's dead now. And for the disciples, they're like, closed case, he's dead. Let's send a card. Let's go by Walgreens, see what they've got on the, like, the sentimental aisle, and we'll send a card. And Jesus is like, no, we're going. And the disciples were there with him when they picked up stones. They were there with him when they sought to arrest him. And in their minds, just like it would be in your mind and in my mind, they panicked. We can't go back there. 
We can't go back to this area because to do so is going to invite harm into our lives. To do so is going to invite pain into our lives. We can't go back there. It's not safe. Jesus has this rather obscure way of responding to the disciples. He's this, this, this philosophical type of response, and we really see it highlighted in the Gospel of John. In talking about this, he says, Are there not 12 hours in the day? And if anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he walks by the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This was his response to, we need to go back, and them saying, ain't no way, Bubba. I mean, it's a little bit strange. It's a little bit obscure. It's a little bit seemingly obtuse. Now, what Jesus is entering into this conversation of is within the Greek and the Jewish mind, they had split the day and the night into two uh, different times of function. So when the sun was up, you worked. When the sun was down, you stopped working. And what Jesus is pointing to is now is the time for him to go into work. Do you see how he's, he's in some, one sense relieving their fears and in another sense telling them that a time is coming when the light will no longer be shining. You know, Jesus has already given them the self-revelation that he himself is the light come into the world to reveal darkness. And so here he's telling them that as light, as the one who is bearing light, as the one who is giving witness, he must be about the work of who? The Father. Jesus has to go back to Bethany. He's got to go back into this area because he's still about fulfilling the mission of the Father. This is centered on so much more than just Lazarus. It's centered on so much more than just one man dying. Are there not 12 hours in a day? You know, look what he, what he says in verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples are confused. They say if he's sleeping, he's going to wake up. In essence, just saying he's sleeping off this sickness. He'll come out of it. We, Jesus, we all know the power of a good power nap. He's going to be just fine. Jesus says uh, just really plainly, No, guys, he's dead. He's not alive anymore. He slept the big sleep, if that makes it come alive for you. He's not going to wake up from this sleep. He is dead. He's not, a, he's not alive anymore. He's not awake in that sense anymore. Lazarus has died. Look what he says in verses 14 and 15. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, speaking to the disciples, I am glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe Lazarus' death and his coming resurrection centers on, exists for the glory of God. He desires to bring about the glory of God in the midst of the pain of his people. God is desiring to, to bring out of the situation some teaching about himself, some teaching about his son and his ministry. Now next we find this, this little line, and if all you ever know about Thomas is that he's this doubter, I encourage you to read verse 20 right there. So that Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Thomas saw this as a suicide mission. He saw this as a suicide mission. He did not see this as, you know, guys, we're going we're gonna to swoop in there in the middle of the night. We're going to go around. We're going to have this little vigil with, with Mary and with Martha. You know, high five Lazarus on the way out of town, and then we're all going to be safe. He recognized that to go there was a one-way trip. And Thomas displayed tremendous bravery 
but also shows us that he doesn't fully realize what Jesus is talking about. It wasn't out of some overwhelming feeling of sentimentality, some overwhelming feeling of being morose, some overwhelming feeling of of just being lost in the midst of his sorrow over the loss of Lazarus that Jesus was going there. He was going there centered on God in his glory. So he goes. Now this is a four-day trip, and he begins this trip, and he, he starts going there and hiking there. And in the midst of this trip, we find out that Lazarus has already died. And when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been dead in the tomb for how long? For four days, verse 17. Now, Bethany is about 1.7 miles from Jerusalem on the way to Jericho. And this is about where Jesus makes it to, just outside of Bethany. And one of the sisters hears that he is there, and she runs out to him. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained in the house. Now, it was common in those days to have a number of professional mourners to gather around you in the midst of your suffering. They would hire, in fact, it's written that, that even poor families would have at least two flute players and a wailing woman. It sounds like an Italian family reunion. But, and so they would get in there and they would have all these people wailing and moaning. And, and what they were doing was giving you a safe place to mourn. They recognized the beauty in mourning. They recognized the beauty in celebrating loss. They recognized that the body has a need to cry. To shed tears. These are good things for us. And so they professionalized this. They had brought in these people. And so Martha bails on the group. Mary stays with them. And then Martha said to Jesus in verse 20, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She understands the power of Jesus in a way. She understands the power of Jesus in a way. She's seen him or heard of him certainly healing the blind. She's heard of him or seen him heal the, the leper, the lame. And so in her mind, she recognizes Jesus has the ability to forestall death. This is pretty amazing. This is pretty amazing that she, that she recognizes the power of Jesus over death. To maintain life, to stave off death. And so she recognizes this. And she, she says as much to him. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, look at this. Verse 22. Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She recognizes too in Jesus that he has a unique relationship with the Father. And that his prayer life is effectual in a way that no one else's is. Whatever you ask from the Father, even now he will give you. And she gets lost again. Jesus looks at her, he says, Martha, your brother will rise again. And in her mind, she triggers into this pharisaical understanding, which is very common in her day, of, of centering on simply a resurrection at the end of time. So you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees believe that the devil rise again. The Sadducees don't. And so she's keying in on this mode of thought. And she says, I know, Jesus, I know, my, my brother will rise again at the end of time. Jesus takes her ordinary, regular understanding of theology and explodes it. He takes her very orthodox, very everyday, normal expression of what happens when someone dies, and he inserts himself into the middle of it. She told Jesus, she said, look, I know he's going to rise again. Everyone that dies will rise again. 
He tells her, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus takes her on a decidedly different path. She's centered on this, this really notional understanding, this very heady understanding of, of the process of what happens when someone dies. And he inserts into this an incredibly personal expression. I'm the resurrection. It's not some ethereal concept. It's not some, some nebulous idea that's just way out there. But he personalizes it. He brings it in. And he says, this resurrection you point to, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me. For you and I, if you believe in Jesus, if your life is centered on Jesus, the forgiveness given to you, uh, by extension through his sacrificial death on the cross and his triumphant raising from the death, if you believe in him, you'll have life eternal. So he invites her into this conversation that she's really not fully prepared to understand. And in fact, no one fully understood until they saw him die and they saw him rise again. But even in this embryonic state of understanding, he pulls her in and he says, do you believe this? Do you believe what I said? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And she has an amazing response. To his confession, she responds, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. She says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the one sent to rescue, the one sent to redeem, the one sent to buy back and reestablish the nation of Israel. Yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ. She goes on. She says, I, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Son of God who is coming into the world. She believes something about Jesus that she's not fully prepared to understand. Imagine this. Jesus stands before Martha. She's hurting. She's sad in her brother's past. She was at least somewhat disappointed that Jesus had not yet arrived. And then he shows up. In the moment of her deepest sorrow. And he reveals something about himself that can forever change and ever transform her life. When we come into the Lord's Supper. We recognize we don't do it out of some sense of sentimentality. We do it out of a sense of recognizing the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice. That when he gathered the disciples together and he broke bread and poured out wine before them, he was telling them, preparing them for the sacrifice that he would make on their behalf and on our behalf. As we prepare to take of the bread, we remember his body which was broken, his body which endured punishment, his body which endured pain, so that you and I might make the same confession as Martha. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. I'm going to ask the deacons to stand. As we pass out the elements, I'm going to ask that you take and hold, and then we will all take it together at the end. Thank you.
looking at Matthew chapter 26, the 26th verse. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Picking back up once again in chapter 11 and verse 28, upon making this really amazing uh, testimony of, of who Jesus is, this, this basis of faith, Martha turns and she runs home. Jesus, remember, he's on the road. He's not yet made it to Bethany. She turns and she runs home and she runs into her sister who is sitting surrounded by the sea of mourners and she whispers in her ear and she says, Come, the teacher desires to see you. Mary jumps up. Mary jumps up and she, she heads out. Now, you'll have to imagine this, this woman who is caught in the midst of sorrow. You've got the flute players. You've got the wailing woman going around her. And so in this sea of activity, she has this quiet word from her sister that says, the teacher calls for you. She jumps up and she runs out the door. Well, the wailing woman, the flute players take off after her. This is what they're there for. They, they assume the text tells us that she's going to the tomb, and so they follow after her, and so this merry band of men and women is headed down the road towards Jesus. And in verse 32, it says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, The very same thing her sister did. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and he sees this whole group of folks around her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He sees the hearts of those around him. He sees the sorrow of those around him. And is producing something inside of him. It's a feeling of being troubled over, over death. It's, it's impact on those around him. And he asks a really simple question. He's got this lady laying at his feet who sometimes, sometime later takes an expensive ointment and pours it out on his same feet and wipes it in with her hair. He's got this woman laying at his feet, sobbing, crying, weeping. And he asks a simple question. Where have you laid him? effectively, where did you put your brother? Where's the cemetery? Where's the funeral plot? Where's his headstone for us today? Where did you lay him? So this group responds and they say, come, let us show him. And then verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He's moved. We already know from the beginning of this account, these aren't random strangers. These are people that Jesus knew who had invested himself in. We knew that he loved them. We've been told so. And now he sees them in their moment of sorrow, and he responds in the most human way possible. He weeps. He cries. He sobs. So the Jews said, on the basis of observing this very human thing in him, See how he loved him. So you've got this one group of people that they see that, and they say, see how he loved him. And this other group looks at it, and their hearts are so hard against Jesus. 
They're so hard against Jesus that when they see him display this emotion, when they see him weep because of the sadness that he's surrounded by, because of the presence of death, and potentially because he knew what was coming for him, that when they see him weep in the midst of this, this is their response. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? It's a very different question than the question asked by the sister. Lord, we know that if you had been here, our brother would still be alive. Martha said, even now we know that God will grant you whatever you request, but this group, they see Jesus, they interpret his tears for being ineffective. They interpret his tears for being powerless. They completely miss Jesus. Lazarus, the story of Lazarus displays God's sovereignty and the compassion coming near to us in the person of Jesus. And when he weeps, half of them get it and half of them so completely miss Jesus. They want to see this stoic, unmoved figure who's able to overcome everything. But in the midst of our sorrow, do we not want a Jesus who comes near us in our sorrows as one who is also had compassion on others, as one who's experienced loss, as one who has experienced grief, as one who has been turned against. This is the Jesus we love and worship. Not some unmoved master of stoicism who's in the midst of these things, who's completely unmoved, as, as, as if it's some badge of courage to see people suffering around you and to be unmoved. Friends, that's just uncaring. That's unloving. God calls us as one body together to demonstrate the type of care, investment in the lives of those around us that when we see them weep, we weep. When we see them hurt, we hurt. When we see them cry and be bereft, we come along beside them and we hurt right there with them. This is the Jesus we see. He's not completely unmoved and indifferent towards these people in pain. He embraces it. He is right there with them. He weeps. This woman at his feet. Verse 38 says, Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And there's some description of it. It's this, this tomb, and there's a stone in front of it, and, and his body would have been laid further back over in there. And Jesus, again, simple statement. Thus far he says, where have you laid him? And he comes again, and he says, take away the stone. And this is interesting. Martha, who had this amazing confession of faith, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. In this moment, Jesus tells her to take away the stone, and there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect in her mind. She has what she understands about Jesus, but she's having a hard time applying it to this incredibly difficult reality. So she moves from this understanding of who she has said Jesus to be to this understanding of how things work in the normal world. What does she say? He says, take away the stone. She says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. The King James actually says, he stinketh. It says he stinketh. I mean, this is just a really clear way of putting this. He smells. His flesh has been rotting for four days. The spices we put on top of him, they're not cutting it anymore. That stone is the only thing between us and the smell of rotting flesh. There's an odor. 
Jesus, we know that whatever you ask of the Father, but at this moment, she looks at it and she says, don't roll the stone away because he is going to smell. He's dead. She has a hard time transitioning between what she knows about God and what she knows about reality or what she perceives to be reality. So take away the stone. Now look at this. He calls her back into this understanding. Verse 40 of chapter 11. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He doesn't seek to reassure her about her brother coming back to life. This story is not about Lazarus being raised from the dead. Like what you and I would say is, it's okay, it's okay, we're going to roll it back, he's going to come out, he's going to be wrapped up in some stuff, but other than that, he's going to be your brother. By this evening, you're going to be cooking dinner for him again. Like that's, that's kind of how we would go into this, but Jesus wants us to understand that this story is about so much more than the details that we get caught up in. He says, did I not tell you did I not tell you this? That if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What is he calling her to believe? That he is the resurrection and the life. He's inviting Martha. He's inviting Mary. He's inviting all those within earshot to come and behold the only Son of God. To come and experience God in a way that they had otherwise thought unthinkable, that they otherwise thought unimaginable. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 41, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, now Jesus is praying. Jesus prays in a way that, that, that is radically different than what we might expect. Look what he says here. Jesus is praying, in a sense, he's communing with God, he's asking something of him, but he's also recognizing the impact of his prayer on those who are standing around and those who are hearing. Father, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I knew that you always hear me, but I said this account, on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus' prayer is not on the basis that he needs God to help him out in that instance. He recognizes that the people around him need to see him communicate with God in a radically different way. They need to know that Jesus' connection with God indicates something about who he is. Namely, that he was sent by God. They need to understand that Jesus isn't just an amazing teacher, an amazing healer, one in whom the anointing of God rests, but he is uniquely God. He is God come in the flesh. I'm praying this so that the people standing around may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. John, who has spent tremendous detail crafting, weaving this story together, he drops off the story. It, it, it really kind of this unexpected time. He doesn't, doesn't wrap it up in this Western concept of how we would expect the narrative to be resolved. Lazarus comes out. They go to lunch at Applebee's. They hang out. He talks about what it was like to have been dead. No, the story ends. We see him come out. He's wrapped in linens. And what does Jesus say? Go and untie him and let him go. God's glory is revealed in the person of Jesus working in the midst of tremendous sadness, difficulty, 
for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. God's glory is being revealed in his word to us so that he might speak to us in our moments of tremendous elation, in our moments of deepest despair, so that we might recognize his glory. God calls us to recognize his glory as is revealed in the person of Jesus. What we see in the Lord's Supper, the links that he went to so that we might know who sent him, so that we might understand him. He has the disciples there in the upper room. He takes the cup. He's filling it out. He says, this cup is the covenant of my blood, which will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He went to tremendous length to show his glory in the case of Lazarus. He goes up against incredible odds. He goes beyond uh, the complete imagine of what anybody might think he would do. He goes all the way to the cross. The Son of God, God in flesh, suffered and died and poured out his blood so that we might see the glory of God revealed through the person of the Son, that we might be united to him and experience the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to ask that the deacon stand and that you take and hold as we pass out the cup. And then as you have it there... your mind begins to go on the significance of the sacrifice of Jesus. The glory of God revealed in the sacrifice of the Son. Not for some imaginary person. Not for some perfect person who has everything worked out, but for you. It's an invitation to faith. It's an invitation to forgiveness. It's an invitation to surrender. And it reminds us of his death and his coming again. Let us give our hearts to thinking on these things as we take and wait. Starting in verse 27, it says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you my father's kingdom as we enter into this time of of application reflection that whatever way God has spoken to you this is the time that we have to respond we recognize that just as Jesus stood at the mouth of the tomb and called the stone to be rolled away and called Lazarus to come out so too he calls to each and every one of us in the midst of our deadness in Ephesians 2.1 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and God calls from eternity past and he says come he calls us broken he calls us abused he calls us mired in our sin in our guilt he comes and says be beautiful be clothed in white come and be forgiven come and receive redemption in the name of Jesus Christ suffers a tremendous reminder for the Christian. The sacrifice which covers the eternity of their life and they call and they look for the forward call of Jesus. But it's a tremendous plea for the one who's far off. It's a call to recognize the sacrifice that somebody else gave on your behalf so that you might be forgiven. Friends, God does not call to you and say, be better. God does not call to you and say, get it right. God calls to you and said, I sent my son 
that I might be glorified in his death, that you might be forgiven, and that you might have life eternal because Jesus Christ alone is the resurrection and the life, and in him alone is salvation. 